As I begin my sermon today, I want you all to um, imagine with me a situation. Imagine a 15-year-old boy. And for sake of illustration, we'll just give him a generic name, call him Andrew or something. So imagine 15-year-old Andrew. And as most 15-year-olds do, he's... um, He's stricken, love stricken, head and head over heels uh, for some girl that he goes to school with or whatever. Uh, when, when he writes in his journal, it is more often than not her name that just keeps popping up and popping up. When he's in chemistry class, uh, it's her that he daydreams of. He's absolutely obsessed with this person. However, there's a problem. He doesn't even know if she knows that he exists or not. His adoration is unrequited. It's unreturned. But this continues on for some time. He makes some awkward attempts at starting conversations or even flirting. And after some time, he begins to notice something. He begins to notice her noticing him and and even awkwardly flirting back. With terror and excitement, the realization dawns on him that that adoration is being returned. Um, That realization comes with a few other realizations, though, that uh, the way she walks is kind of funny. The way she laughs, a little annoying. He finds a multitude of reasons, just petty reasons. And, And at the end of all of it, this, this girl he was obsessed with, he now finds unbearably annoying. The love that he longed for, he can't accept. Sitting uh, under the preaching of Kyle and Tim for this long, I hope it's been instilled in us that we know that a core human desire is to be longed for, is to be loved, is to be accepted. So why, like this hypothetical Andrew, do we refuse it when it's given to us? Is this not why we um, have a hard time accepting compliments? Is this not why when a, when a spouse or when a dear friend loves us, encourages us, supports us, does it always seem just a little bit far-fetched, a little bit uh, untrustworthy? Or um, my family is in this weekend, uh, and... Even to this day, unfortunately, but especially when I was younger, when when a parent loves a child, dotes on a child, has their back, for a child, that feels ridiculous. Like there's nothing more untrustworthy, but how many of you all who are parents are like, no, that, that is the most real thing, that love that I give you. But why do we do this? Why do, why do we reject? Why do we push away the love that's given to us? Well, it's because love in these situations directly contradicts uh, our own tightly held negative self-image. The love of whoever's giving it to us uh, proclaims us as lovely, but this is incongruent. It's at tension with uh, this innate belief that we are unlovely. So we're forced into a decision in that moment. Either, Either they are wrong or I am. Either they are untrustworthy or I am. And and, and so often we choose to believe that the other person is untrustworthy, ridiculous, or, you know, fill in the blank of some insult, right? Um, And and this is what we do with the love of God. 
This is what we do when we refuse the love of God or when we accept it, but only on our terms. Or when we see ourselves as less than something that he proclaims us to be. Uh, Today, I would like to convince you that you're wrong and that God is right. I'd like, I'd like us to, as we go through this summer of praying through the Psalms, know that, we'll put it this way, to pray like Jesus does. If, we're gonna, if, we're, if that's the goal going through these Psalms, that's impossible. If we do not believe, if we do not accept that the Father loves us, if the Father uh, has accepted us, in fact, all growth in Christ's likeness begins with us believing that we are who Christ says we are. All peace and joy that comes from Christ comes from knowing that we are who he says we are, that we are his. So today I'm going to be preaching through Psalm 139. Uh, you know, the for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. It's probably hung up right next to your live, laugh, love wall decor. Uh, I'm going to be making it three points through this chapter. Firstly, that when God loves, he is not ignorant. When God loves, he is not absent. And lastly, when God loves, he despises our shame. So firstly, when when God loves, he is not ignorant. Go ahead and turn, if you have your Bibles, uh, to Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. Um, Now, Kyle gave us the challenge to practice scripture memorization, so I'm going to try to say this chapter from memory, but being in front of a stage is a really good way to test how well you have something memorized. Uh, Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You you discern my thoughts from afar. You, you search out my paths in, in, in my laying down. You are acquainted with all of my ways. There we go. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and your hand is upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. When God loves, he is not ignorant. What's the point of these verses? Verse one, right? Uh, you've searched me, you've known me. And then, and then David, the writer of this psalm, then goes on to list all the ways in which we are perfectly known by God. From actions done in secrets to even our thoughts in, in words before they've even hit our tongue. We are known perfectly by God. This is the point. God knows us perfectly. But let's start with this. God knows perfectly. That is, he is omniscient. This is, this is God's godness, his infinity, his absolute otherness, applied to his knowledge. He possesses all knowledge, and his knowledge of all things is perfect. Uh, whereas we have to put things out of mind so that we can focus and that we can more efficiently process information or data or whatever, uh, he holds all knowledge simultaneously. Whereas we have to approach reality through different perspectives, different fields of study, different disciplines. And then at the end, hope that our ability to integrate everything is sufficient. God holds reality in the palm of his hand. His, his perception has no limitations. A, a crucial implication of the doctrine of God's omniscience 
is that not only does he possess all knowledge, but he possesses all kinds of knowledge. Maybe this has happened to you or maybe you've done it to someone else, but think about those times where um, you're emotionally stiff-armed because you didn't have knowledge of what it was like to experience X, Y, or Z. You, you know that something happened, but you don't have the knowledge that comes from experience. So those are two different kinds of knowledge. Knowledge from observation and knowledge from experience. But God possesses all kinds of knowledge. He knows what it is to experience that which he has not experienced. Which brings me back to the previous point. God knows us perfectly. This is, this is where the psalm is written. You have searched me. You have known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, etc., etc. God knows us perfectly. When he loves, he is not ignorant. There was nothing hidden from him when he chose to adopt us. It's not like his files were incomplete, maybe missing a page or two. No, we just prayed it. To you, our hearts are open, our desires known. From you, no secrets are hid. So God lovingly adopts us even more. He delights in us, knowing full well everything there is to know about us. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. What was the joy? The will of God in bringing many sons to glory. God knows us, yet he loves us. The problem is not his knowledge of us. It's, it's our knowledge of ourselves. We don't know ourselves perfectly. The whole field of psychology is enough to prove that point. We don't know the whys and the hows of our hearts. So to then say or, or reject the love of God, uh, accusing him of ignorance and based upon our perfect knowledge of ourselves, that, that's ridiculous. So maybe you're, you're sitting here and you would never say it, but you believe if God really knew all the things that go on in my head, he wouldn't love me. If he really knew everything that I've said or done, he wouldn't love me. If he really knew this double life I live or how I feel underneath the mask that I put on for other people, he wouldn't love me. Well, I'm here to speak the word of God that he knows and he loves you. When God loves, he is not ignorant. Let's look at the next section, verses 7 through 12. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take up the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall guide me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely darkness shall cover me and, and light about me be night. <clears throat> even darkness is not dark to you for night is as bright as day. For darkness is as light with you. When God loves, he is not ignorant. And so too, when God loves, he is not absent. Absent love is easy to dismiss. It's easy to disqualify. I have plenty of friends uh, back in Tennessee or Chicago who I, who I love and who love me deeply. But their ability to speak life and identity into me is no doubt hindered by the distance. But this isn't the case with God. He's, he's with us. He's infinitely present to us. 
And here we encounter another one of the omnis, the omnipresence of God. God's godness, his infinity, his absolute otherness applied to his presence. Just to say he doesn't occupy space and time like we do. Uh, he isn't localized to any particular space and time. Like the ancient Israelites learned, God is not tied to a particular land like the other ancient gods were supposed to have been. So too would it be a mistake to think of God's omnipresence in a, like a panentheistic manner. That is, um, that, God, that God is in everything the way that we confess the Holy Spirit is in us. This would, be to, um, this would be to apply the categories and the concepts of our creaturely existence to the transcendent creator, when in fact we need to think of his omnipresence according to his transcendent nature. This is like my biggest beef with <clears throat> someone like Richard Rohr, who is a self-professed Christian panentheist. It's a categorical fallacy. But this is, this is the point of these verses, that... God's omnipresence is uniquely relational. That God is present to us. He is with us. Those words, I, I take up the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there, your hand shall guide me, your right hand shall hold me. Or think of the words of Christ right before the ascension. And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. The, let us not be fooled into thinking that Jesus came some 2,000 years ago, did some cool stuff, and then left. This is the significance of what we celebrated three weeks ago on Pentecost Sunday, that the Holy Spirit came and was given to us to dwell in our hearts. The Holy Spirit, who is not some lesser member of the Trinity, he is a co-equal member of the Trinity, along with the Father and with the Son, so in the presence of the Holy Spirit, we have the very presence of God. Let us hold fast to that faith then, that God is infinitely and always accessible to us. Admittedly, this is hard to grasp. This is hard to believe, uh, not because he isn't present to us, but because we are often not present to him. For some of you, it's going to be those mundane uh, everyday motions of life in which we, we lose sight of God's presence to us. For some of you, is it in the midst of suffering that you lose sight of God's presence with you? Or is it the exact opposite? It's when everything is great, when everything's going fine. What need do we have of God in those moments? Maybe it's there that you lose sight of God's presence. But in every season, God wants to make himself known to us. He wants to be with us. So are we holding so tightly onto the ways he's done that in the past that we're ignoring what he's trying to do in the present? Let us remember, let us have faith, let us stand firm on the fact that the Holy Spirit has been given to us as a seal, as a guarantee of God's love and God's presence with us. And then from there, see all the various ways he wants to make himself known to us in every season of life. When God loves he is not absent. Finally, turn to those iconic verses, verses 13 through 18. For you formed my inward parts. 
You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, when I was intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they'd be more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. When God loves, he is an ignorant. When God loves, he is not absent. Finally, we get to the last point. When God loves, he despises our shame. This is truly the heart of the issue. Ignorance and absence, those are accusations we throw out because we want to protect and hold on to our shame. But that shame, the, the shame we heap upon ourselves, that, uh, that others heap upon us, God despises it. Why? Well, the, the argument of the psalm is that he is our creator, God, who is goodness and beauty itself created us, not in some vague or generic way. He didn't just get a few strands of DNA, slap them together and see what comes out. No, he intimately and intricately created us and formed us to be what we are. Both body and soul were fashioned by God even those things about ourselves that we despise. Maybe it's uh, something about our physical appearance or our personality quirks. When, when we allow God's love to be, to be the voice that defines us, we can see that we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Those things that we despise can then become reasons to celebrate. You know, so often we buy into the lie that our worthiness, our loveliness is determined by how desirable we are to those around us or not even around us. Uh, we apply market principles to the human soul as if we are objects being bid on by society. And so to avoid the shame of being undesirable, we try to make ourselves beautiful or attractive or we try to make ourselves successful or accomplished to avoid the shame of being undesirable. Or, or we try to demonstrate to everyone, convince everyone around us of our piety, our righteousness, our intelligence, so that we don't have to deal with the shame of being undesirable. But as many of you know, and as all of us have experienced, when shame is your motivation, it is your inevitable conclusion. When from the point of shame, you try to make yourself beautiful or, or intelligent or righteous or fill in the blank, you will never leave that shame. Shame doesn't produce its own antidote. Only the infinite and perfect love of God can. In shame, we reject the love of God. We alienate ourselves from God, but this shame both shame from within and shame from without, God despises. The, the, reason, or the ways in which we were made should not be reasons for shame. But is there a reason for shame? Is there a right and proper reason for shame? Controversial question. There is. There's a really good reason, and that's sin. Our sin is deplorable. There's no question about it. If we've stopped believing that, 
We've stopped believing our Bibles. Listen to what David says in the following verses, uh, 19 through 22. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Sin, most fundamentally, is this rebellion against God. And and we might not think about it in these terms day to day, but is it not rebellion against the God of the universe to then get ourselves and make ourselves the center of our own realities? To, to this, David rightly attributes shame. That, that shame that tells us something's wrong with me. The shame belongs to all of us, even to David. But even that shame, that justified shame, God overcomes. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Sin alienated us from God, but it did not stop his love for us. Now, through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, we have been reconciled to God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, To reject the love of God based upon our own sinfulness is to disregard utterly the blood of Christ, the blood that bought our adoption, the blood that bought our reconciliation. Uh, Luther, in his 28th thesis of uh, the Heidelberg Disputation, words this beautifully. The love of God does not find, but creates what is pleasing to it. This is his point. Human love... Human love sees something that is lovely and then gives love. With God's love, the cause and effect is the exact opposite. God loves, and in that love, the object of love is made lovely. Put another way, we are made lovely by his love. So upon the cross, he does away with our shame. Upon the cross, he... It does away with any reason we have for, our, for us to consider ourselves unlovely or undesirable or unworthy. When God loves, he despises our shame. So let's, let's return to that 15-year-old Andrew for a moment. Uh, that 15-year-old Andrew, his most fundamental problem isn't with the love of a ro- romantic interest. His most fundamental problem isn't with the love of friend or mentor. No, his most fundamental problem is with the love of God. His rejection of the love of God precedes all the others. And I hope at this point that 15-year-old Andrew isn't just a bad sermon illustration. It's a mirror for, for us to see the ways in which we, most of us being much older than 15 years old, reject the love of God or accept it, but only on our terms. But the love of God, when given to us, confronts us and it leaves us with two choices. Either either we conclude that God is something less than he claims to be or that we, 
must be something more than we believe ourselves to be. But when God loves, he is not ignorant. Every crack and crevice of our hearts, he knows, and yet he loves us. When he loves, he is not absent. In every moment, in every season of life, he is near to us. He's beside us. And when he loves, he despises our shame, for he is our creator. And even the shame that is rightfully ours, he saw, he paid the price for it, and then he did away with it. So there, there really are, there isn't two choices. There's really one rational choice that when God loves, we must conclude that we really are who he says we are that we really are sons and daughters of the living God, that we really must be co-heirs with Christ, that we really must be the living temple of God, that we are his people and he is our God. All growth in Christ-likeness begins here. It begins with believing that. All peace and joy in life and in Christ begins with believing and accepting that letting God's love transform how we see ourselves. And, and if this is so, if God in his infinite love, the creator of the universe, declares us his sons and daughters, if he declares us co-heirs with Christ, if he claims all these great things about us, who are we to say anything different We'll end with praying the last few verses of this chapter. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. Thank you, Lord, that your love does not hide from those parts of ourselves that we hide even from ourselves. You, O glorious God, love us, knowing full well all that there is to be known about us. Lord of hosts, just as you smash all the high places of false gods and idols, would you overcome the lies that we and the world speak over ourselves? Would you reduce the strongholds of the enemy in our hearts to ash? Would you turn our hearts to you so that we, we might abide in your love, know who we truly are, follow you without reservation, and be filled with your joy? All these things we pray in the name of our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>